0: We're joined for this show, a special on climate with uh, Frank Sheridan, who is the executive secretary of the uh, Global Greens and the Global Greens and Frank were uh, participants at the recent COP 27 conference of parties that gathered in Egypt to help the world make decisions about climate, partly as a follow up, you know, to the Paris Climate Accords. Um, so, when we start, Frank, you want to give people a quick introduction, what's What's the Global Greens?
1: Thanks very much, Mark, and uh, thanks very much for having us on your station, and hello to America, it's a pleasure to be uh, speaking with you, and uh, yeah, hope you've been enjoying what Mark got on offer, and I'm excited to be part of the program today. The Global Greens, I'll start with that, um, you may or may not know that around the world, most countries have a Green Party in it, and the Global Greens is the international connection of those Green Parties. Um, the, the organization is um, uh, the, the federations of, sorry, excuse me, there's four federations around the world. Uh, the Americas, where your home surf is, uh, Europe, where I'm talking to you from in Italy, although originally I'm from the UK, uh, Africa and Asia Pacific. And I manage the interconnection uh, of the um, of the green parties, looking at capacity building, resource sharing, making sure we get good green uh, people in positions of power. Um, and we're basically building up the green movement.
0: Now, you're up COP27, and I did see a summary you put down um, about the event. Certainly, many people are focusing on the fact that while there are not many details, there was agreement, finally, that the you know Global North will be responsible for some of the Western damages uh, to pay for the Global South. Um, but generally not as much optimism that uh, they really cracked down on the fossil fuel plants and, and emissions uh, as much as they should have. So, you know, what is your basic impression, you know, coming away from from, from COP?
1: Well, you know, it's always a mixed bag. Let's be clear. Uh, you know, there's many of us, Mark, and I think you included, and many of our listeners out there who've been talking and interested in this for a long, long time. Uh, and, you know, if we'd have been addressing this properly, we wouldn't be in this situation now. Uh, and ultimately, we, we've got some very positive news in many senses. Uh, we campaigned heavily on loss and damage. Um, but there's other key things which are missing from uh, the agreement, really, and are just not being addressed properly um let's just take a little rewind and remind ourselves of the science uh, which is from the ipcc and the un uh, and let's be honest this isn't uh, this is sort of mainstream science now this isn't sort of you know out there as it used to be kind of accused of but we know we need emissions to peak um very soon and we need a 45 percent reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 to keep to 1.5 that is a fact um there's actually more to it really depending on how you scrutinize it But in order to keep to a 1.5 world that is what we need to have that's what our goal is and the failing i guess of this cop is that it's not been addressed properly and that is not looking that's looking basically at the fact we're not looking at the cause of the problems which is fossil fuel emissions in fact in the past year a a recent report suggested well demonstrated that they've actually increased uh, particularly after covid as well which is disappointing um they need to be peaking they need to be going down Loss and damage is the effect of climate change if fossil fuels are the cause loss and damage is the effect so what's interesting about the the agreement and there's more nuance to it um is that yes we have finally got the developed world the global north to agree um we worked quite hard with europe uh, on that and i'd like to talk a bit more about that later and the us as well came on board so that is a big positivity uh, we know climate justice is at the heart of what we do the people who are impacted the most by climate change have bear the least responsibility for it it's a missions which my continent and your country are responsible for and that's what made us generally wealthy although I'm sure there's problems within that too I know there is in mine and elsewhere too but this is what has given us a standing in the world so addressing loss and damage is fantastic it's not perfect um they've had to do a lot of um uh, sort of consensus building and sort of clever negotiations to get people to sign it and there's more to come but it is a plus but ultimately, what isn't on there is a proper acknowledgement of what the cause of the problem is, and that is fossil fuel emissions.
0: Now, one of the controversial elements of this particular COP was, was held in Egypt, where they have a very poor track record on, on, on human rights. Uh, I, I believe the Egyptian uh, Green Party actually have some members in the, uh, the Senate of, of Egypt uh formally boycotted the the event what what was the um you know sort of scene like i understand maybe as many as thirty thousand people many of them were uh, apparently fossil fuel uh, lobbyists
1: yeah i mean to be honest um i'm going to shout it out now uh, there was a weak host country who i think really ultimately were out for the prize of hosting a cop um and some some aspects of what wasn't addressed during the negotiations and the role of the host country uh, highlighted that weakness but i'd just like to return to what you're saying about the egyptian green party i'd like to give a shout out to a very dear friend of mine muhammad awad who is the leader of the egyptian green party um i work very closely with him and uh, their decision to boycott was something that we worked upon together um we did discuss whether we should boycott too. Uh, let, let's be clear there's over sixty thousand political prisoners um, languishing in jail with no recourse, no legal aspect, not, not knowing anything um, since al came to power. Um, and that is atrocious. I think, you know, looking at the UNFCCC, you need to look very hard about the countries that host it and what's expected of them. And we can talk a bit more about that later as well. And even affected by my own country and being uh, more honest about its colonial history uh, and the, the damage that's done and the wealth that's given us today but you know the the egyptians in a sense were it was okay it was one of the second i think it's the second most attended cop ever so it's a big deal um and looking at the number of gas deals that have been struck uh there is very questionable given the ukraine invasion uh, and the appalling behavior of putin on the world stage and, and the regional stage there um that, that's been exploited and i think egypt particularly did not put strong language uh, about fossil fuel reduction on the paper. I mean, that should be their job to be putting hard language on there for negotiators to knock off or, or to work with. And it was just never there. Other countries had to put it on. So the fact this is billed as the African COP and Egyptians, the Egyptian government taking a lead on that kind of indicates where they're coming from really with that. You know, they were all about making some deals. There's the biggest number of fossil fuel lobbyists there as well they're given passes and aspect access excuse me uh, by the egyptian government into the negotiators which people like us just did not have frankly that stinks um and the outcome of it um, what was good about the agreement and what's nugget no about it speaks to that really and it's quite weak on their part too
0: yeah you mentioned that the uh, you know egypt as the host country really did not do a very good job of putting the issue of cotton emissions on the table and, and I, I did see reports that the, uh, the the person who was basically the formal host um, for the glasgow um, cop 2726 last year was was quite uh, vocal that in fact um, he, he thought there was a good chance that we really were losing any ability to keep global warming below 1.5. Uh, degrees. But you also mentioned this was the African uh, cop. And, you know, one of the things is I was doing some research about the issue of loss and damages, which I had not really fully grasped previously, is how many of the most vulnerable countries on the planet um, to climate um, and experience extreme weather already, uh, you know, is from Africa. And then you also mentioned the issue of the legacy of colonialism. And of course, Africa is one of the Perhaps the continent with the most uh disturbing legacy about um colonialism. So, so how did the African countries feel about the outcome?
1: Probably um excuse me, it's it's it's, it's again it's a mixed bag, really. Um again, uh, my movement and my delegation, well our delegation um it was very well represented through Africa. Um probably people out there who are listening have noticed that perhaps compared to COP26 in Glasgow last year, last year. Um, uh, You might have heard a bit less about it this year. Um, But in Africa, it was very, very different. Uh, There's been a lot of momentum, a lot of energy about it. Um, So, again, the outcome is kind of a mixed bag, really. They have loss and damage on the agenda, and that's something they fought really, really hard to have on there. Um, There are issues with uh, what's going to happen next, So they have a formal agreement. Really, the crux of the issue was that, It wasn't just the Global north responsibility in Europe and the US and other major economies uh, signing up to it, which they did very quickly, actually. Um, It's actually the mechanism behind the loss and damage facility is built upon the 1992 language of the UNFCCC, and that is the definition of what a developed and a developing country is. But that's quite a long time ago now. That's 30 years. So countries such as China, Saudi Arabia, South Korea, of very, very different countries to what they were 30 years ago. So they were kind of uh, not South Korea, but Saudi Arabia and uh, China in particular, were very, very reticent to be wanting to be fun- funding this loss and damage fund. The global north, the developed countries feel feeling well, particularly China is by far the biggest emitter. And uh, they've had a per capita increase of you know 30 times compared to 1992. Saudi Arabia is a massive petro oil state. So. Part of the crooks actually came down to those countries there as well. And just to give our listeners at home a bit of context, um, the negotiations don't just happen country to country. They happen within negotiating blocks. Uh, where I'm talking from in Europe, we're a negotiating block. Um, but the global south is not largely organized into what's called the G77 plus China. <laughs> I think the plus China tells you quite a bit about the issues there as well. Um, and it's just sort of like... Um, strategic sort of negotiating games that get played really Um, the Chinese sometimes move away and kind of go on their own and and really they're they're on a par with America and Europe with the amount of emissions that there are and the responsibility for it increasingly Uh, however they like to be seen as a negotiate as a G77 as a global South country Um, and because China's been very very strong at investing in many places in Africa um, they have a lot of friends, a lot of favorites, particularly in the governments there, whereas people might think a little bit differently. So sometimes uh, when the EU announced they were going to go for loss and damage, uh, that was actually perceived a little bit negatively, surprisingly, by the global south or some countries because it was perceived as driving a wedge between the G77 and China. That wasn't the perspective at all from one of the Irish Greens is actually a negotiator. Uh, uh, so we had a bit of insight and that really wasn't the way they were coming from. But this is how it's perceived as well. So it's quite a complicated thing. Um, Coming back to your question, what does Africa think about it? I mean, I will not speak for Africa, to be honest, as a a white European man. But the people I work with are happy there's a loss and damage facility. There's a lot of work to do to make it happen. Um, Some of the initial language was meaning that, for example, that Pakistan, uh, I'm not sure if our viewers or listeners at home know about this, but has had devastating floods uh, over the past few months. You know, seventy percent of the country underwater. Livelihoods, livestock, buildings, roads, schools, hospitals, people displaced. Boom! It's been massive. Um, that country initially, uh, and the, the one of the early drafts of loss and damage wouldn't have actually qualified funding from it. One of the early drafts of it. But that's got put to one side now. And what's happened is a a committee is going to be put forward uh, and they have to work upon which countries actually qualify as vulnerable and the aspects of that too. And just talking about Pakistan as well, we worked very hard with the Pakistan Greens. There's a couple of parties there. Um, And actually, the example of Pakistan is really what kept loss and damage really high on the agenda and really what helped us bring it home and get a result on it. Um, We had key speakers uh, getting into the plenaries. We had key speakers speaking to negotiators. We were talking for the media, we were platforming. I say we, not just the Global Greens, the broad um, umbrella of our movement. And that was a really, really fantastic example because the science has radically changed in the past few years, and they can demonstrate that that flooding is 80% more likely because of climate change. We can actually say now these big events are because of climate change. Five years ago, we couldn't say that. So we've been able to use the science In order to develop proper policy and to create pressure on the negotiators to have better outcomes an example of pakistan is devastating and my heart goes out to the poor people who many of them still homeless sitting by the roadside unable to go to school go to hospital waterborne diseases a tremendous amount of difficulty there but that example enables to show climate change is here it's happening all around us i'm sure you've all felt it in the us we certainly have here in europe i'm based in italy we had our, our 40 degree July temperatures started in May uh, and they only just stopped a couple of weeks ago. It's crazy. But exa- the examples like that and the devastation it's causing really help to bring that home. And that's a powerful thing. And that's something that Africa really responds to because they've been seeing this and feeling this for much longer than we have for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And they've been crying and banging drums about it for so long. So it's a big positive in that respect. How it gets funded, who funds it, who receives from it and how is the next complication?
0: We're talking with uh, Frank Sheridan, uh, Executive Secretary of the Global Greens. Uh, This is Mark Dunley on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You had mentioned earlier the the need to cut emissions by at least 45% um, by 2030. One thing I'll point out, I mean, those are the numbers that come from the IPCC, but they actually don't believe that that is sufficient to actually, you know, Keep below 1.5 degrees centigrade. Um, in order to do that, in addition to 45 percent cuts, uh, they have been really calling very heavily for uh, carbon capture and particularly carbon capture and sequestration. And it, it, it seemed like that was one of the things that you know the big industrial countries continue to, to to push. And and I know the countries like India. I guess about 80 of the countries actually had wanted to talk about or include language to phase out uh, fossil fuels. but instead what they ended up with was some discussion that just mentioned unabated coal. So it seemed like you know fossil fuels still really did not uh, take as big a hit as people want.
1: Absolutely. And that's the heart of it. You know, look at loss and damage. We've had movement on the effects of climate change and particularly on the most vulnerable in the climate justice, social justice aspects. The people least responsible for the problem are facing the biggest aspects, but the cause of the problem is not being addressed. Um, It's interesting, you're referring to COP26 language there. And for those uh, listeners at home who perhaps were following that, um, I I might not agree with this man's politics and political party. He's from a different field, but Alok Sharma, Uh, Was the lead? There was the president of COP26, and fair play to the man. Uh, He worked his ass off to try and get a good deal, and he worked really hard trying to get fossil fuels on there. The initial language was phase out uh, coal. Um, Then we had this sort of like compromise of phase out unabated coal, which is basically runaway coal. What does that mean, really? And then, to be honest, the uh, Indian and Chinese government ambushed them at the last minute. Look, that was an agreement, and they said we're not going to have that. We're not going to have phase out. We need phase down, which basically means reduce. This year, um, there was talk again of having phase out all fossil fuels. What we've ended up with instead is uh, language around low emissions energy, in inverted commas, like low emissions energy, which, all right, great. What what does that mean? I mean, you could apply that to gas. You could apply that to carbon capture storage. You can apply it to nuclear. You can apply it to renewables, which you really should be, but it's not about getting rid of fossil fuels and our addiction to it. Um, I'd like to touch upon what you said about carbon capture storage, Um, despite how I might sound, I've I've done quite a lot of reading and a lot of study into this background stuff. Look, uh, people are proposing this as some kind of solution. It's not proven at all. And this is the fundamental crux of that. We do have things that we can do today. Renewables are far, far cheaper to process to make energy than any kind of fossil fuels. The technology is there. They just need to spend the money and get the political will to roll it out fast. Everything we need to get to 45% is potentially there. And I will agree with you, the IPCC, although it sounds radical perhaps to some of our listeners at home, um, actually could be seen as relatively conservative. And again, if we'd been doing stronger things or the governments have been working more strongly 20 years ago, we would not be having this conversation and I would be sipping a margarita on a beach somewhere. However, this is the fact of the matter. Carbon capture storage is not demonstrated. It's not proven. And by putting our eggs in that basket, it's basically maintaining business as usual and maintaining the status quo, while we pump carbon dioxide and methane into the skies with a sort of magic wand that somehow in the future, we're going to be able to suck it out. There's no evidence for that at all. It's unproven. It's absolutely baby. There's nothing happening there at all. I'm probably sounding quite ticked off about that part of me but there are things that we can do today wholesale rollout of renewable energy is feasible possible economically viable technologically possible there are many parts of the U.S. which could uh, um, um, be very successful on renewables Um, it's always sunny somewhere it's always wind somewhere battery power needs to be built upon there are different things that need to do Ultimately, a big part of it too is the way our energy systems are structured. They tend to be heavily heavily centralized. and similar to the fossil fuel sector, that industry also doesn't want to be broken up and be decentralized in that way. Unfortunately, as we all know and people know about climate change issues, uh, we have a systemic issue. We're all the new. We all pollute. We can't help it. It's when you turn on the lights, when you drive your car, when you get, when you see your mom, when you get to take a flight, when you buy something, it's all embedded. So understanding that system and looking at the foundations initially of what creates that emissions is what we need to tackle, and that is the energy system. And concurrently and related to that is a fossil fuel addiction.
0: Now, the you know Secretary General of the United Nations has been repeatedly warning uh, that what the world's governments have been pledging in terms of emission cuts are nowhere near adequate to you know prevent going way past 1.5 degrees, probably more, two and a half uh, to to three degrees. The the sort of the more, you know, the, the climate justice community folks over there, on a broader perspective, are they optimistic that the world actually is going to be able to, you know, at least avoid the worst of climate collapse or at least create a world where, you know, everybody has some chance of surviving or, you know, what's this, balance between hope and despair among people at this point after cop 27
1: that's a great question uh, and i'd look to be in a position where i speak for all people but i think like um it's all to play for mark you know i think you know people out there who know about climate change um who see the impacts you know i'm sure you know where our listeners are uh, you know hearing this from You've had impacts there, you know, you, you've tangibly seen it before your eyes, you know, and if you've got kids or people around you who have kids or grandkids or whatever, you know, you must look at them and go, God, what is coming? Uh, and again, I've done a lot of reading and research in the background of this and the predictions of what's going to happen by 2050 if we don't change. And if we think it's bad now, it, it is just going to be horrendous. Um, just to touch upon where we're at with the negotiations and the commitments to the Paris Agreement, uh, and to 1.5, um, countries have to submit each year what they call NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions. And this is the, the government's plans for reducing emissions within their economies. Um, assuming they do what they say they will do, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt as much as we like to do that. Um if they do that at the moment by 2050 we're on plus 2.5 degrees warming now you go okay 1.5 1.6 to 2.5 surely it can't be so bad but let's look at the ipcc 1.5 report that came out a few years ago or two three years ago which actually really instigated the 1.5 target into cop26 in glasgow and bearing in mind paris had between said two and will try for 1.5 but the ipcc 1.5 report demonstrated that the difference between a 1.5 world and a two-degree world was basically millions to billions of people displaced, migrants, large parts of the planet inhabitable, the collapse of the rainforest, the collapse of coral, the collapse of Antarctic ice sheets, and a hugely, hugely unstable climate. For those of us who have perhaps looked at human history, I'd really like to recommend a wonderful book by uh, Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs and Steel. He'll teach you the short history of everyone for the last 10,000 years and there's lots of other these kind of macro history books um we've been able to flourish because of an unusual period of stability in the climate over the last 10,000 years it might not seem it but that's what it was it, it's been largely very very different and out of that kind of window we developed and we left being sort of like animalistic in a way if you want to look at it from foraging um into de, uh, being able to populate more areas of the planet being able to move around more and ultimately develop cities and towns. Now, a lot of my friends are Indigenous peoples. I perhaps want to caveat what I just said previously in case it sounds a little bit unkind. Um, nature-based, uh, land-based connections are, is the best things that we have. And I think that's the kind of voice that needs to be uh, front and centre. The climate negotiations is often kind of ignored. But let's come back to this period. We have this period of stability. And the IPCC report demonstrated um, completely that the difference between 1.5 and 2 is the difference between life and death for billions and billions of people. I think, did we just clock over 8 billion people a few weeks ago or something like that? I think I read recently. We're projected to be 12 billion by 2050 and beyond. You know, th- these people are coming. They're here. We can't deny it. We know what's going to happen. The, the data science shows us the world we're in it shows us what's causing the problems it's showing us the impacts and effects and it shows us what's going to happen and we have the solutions they're really 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 simple tackling the fossil fuel industry tackling big business tackling the financial sector and tackling how we do energy and then we can look at recycling and there's also biodiversity nature enhancements etc they're all wrapped up together But really in the next five to ten years if we really tackle those things and it's easy to do we just need to break the chain of power and it is possible we just need the political will and everyone listening out there coming back to your question about despair and hope do have hope um because that's all we've got it is possible the window is not closed yet we can have a 1.5 degree world it is possible bang pots vote the correct way shop correctly don't do make lifestyle choices. Do everything you possibly can to make this your most important thing because your children and your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren will thank you for it.
0: Now, we only have about two minutes left. We've been talking with Frank Sheridan, Executive Secretary of, of Global Greens. I know in your summary, you also mentioned about some long overdue World Bank reform and you, you talk there needs to be a lot more support for adaptation but in that last 90 seconds, what's, what's, what's your last point you'd like to to raise?
1: All right. I'm on a 90-second countdown. Okay. I'll try not to talk too fast. Um, let's look at the loss and damage facility. Let's look at the issues we have. You know, and the people who are naysayers or perhaps people at home are thinking, yeah, but God, it's just so much money. How are we going to change? The money exists in the world. It just needs to be taken. Let's look at the fossil fuel sector. In the past year alone, I mean, this is already a multi-multi-billion-profit sector. You know, I, I take planes. I, I'm not like a naysayer. I don't live in, in a cave with a, you know, a rock on my head. I take transport. I have a bike, but whatever, you know. this is a foster, This is a sector which makes billions and billions of dollars. In the past year alone, it's made an extra billions, billions, billions. Windfall tax, super simple there you have a lot of cash. Let's look at the financial sector. There are trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars sloshing around, being moved in complicated things, so complicated that even my clever, clever friends who work in the financial sector don't really fully understand it. Anyone who tells you they do is a liar. A Robin Hood tax, we call it in the UK, they tried to propose this after the financial crisis of 2010. You do a transactional tax and you can generate billions and billions. Then how that money is distributed through mechanisms like the World Bank, through the IMF, you basically create rules and regulations. So these organizations cannot fund the problem. They fund the solution. It's that simple. The money is there. We just need the political alignment and the regulation to do that. And we just need to change the institution so they direct the money correctly.
0: And Frank, if people want to find out more information about the Global Greens, you guys have a website?
1: Well, I mean, we've we've sort of lurched slightly into the 21st century, uh, albeit reluctantly. Yeah, of course, you can find us on all social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, if it still exists, depending what's happening there, and LinkedIn and elsewhere too, and YouTube, uh, Global Greens, uh, you'll see our symbol there. And of course, we've got a website, www.globalgreens.org. And you'll see what we did there with that name.
0: Well, thank you very much, Frank Sheridan from the Global Greens, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine.